we are bombarded by messages, aren't we? Every day, messages coming from every direction. We have voice messages when people miss us. We have Facebook messages. We have, of course, text messages. I mean, everywhere you look, every moment of the day, we are available for people to get in touch with us, to get a message to us. And here's the danger for all of our lives. There's so many messages heading our direction that it's easy to lose sight of what's most important. Let me say it like this. When we're bombarded by so many messages, it's easy to lose sight of the message of the Lord speaking into our lives from His Word. So I want to talk to you about a message that Jesus had for some churches in the first century that apply to us. We might call it a a message to the church. This will begin a summer sermon series. All summer long, we're going to work through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and look at the specific messages that Jesus had for specific churches in the first century. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. Revelation chapter 1. Now we finished 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago. Revelation 2 and 3 will be our summer sermon series. And then at the end of the summer, we will begin a study of the book of Colossians. Can't wait for that. So just FYI, that's where we are headed Revelation chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 9. The Bible says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which, by the way, that's always a good idea. Don't you think it's a good idea to come to church in the Spirit? ready to hear from God, ready to worship God, ready to let God speak into your life. It's always a good idea to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Just food for thought. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let's pray. Father, We are so grateful for your presence here today. We're so grateful, Lord, for the privilege of gathering together as a faith family to worship you, to proclaim your goodness and your redemption. And, Lord, to be still before you and to let you speak into our lives from your word. God, I pray that you would would move in mighty ways in our midst. Holy Spirit, I ask you to take the truth of the word of God and grip our hearts with it, that we might consider these truths, apply these truths, be changed by these truths. Well, thank you, Lord, and praise you for that grace. Establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The context of this passage in this book is found in verse 9 of chapter 1, where... John writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. The John referred to here is uh, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus called two brothers, sons of Zebedee, James and John. This is the same John. Now, of the twelve disciples, Judas committed suicide. You remember that story. And of the remaining eleven disciples that Jesus called to him during his earthly ministry, ten of them died a martyr's death. They were killed for preaching Jesus. One of them did not die a martyr. He died in exile on an island called Patmos. It was John. So John did not, was not martyred, Christian history tells us, for preaching the gospel, but he was in prison for preaching the gospel. Look what he says there in verse 9. He says, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's very clear. I was on that island because I preached the gospel. Now, Patmos was a rocky, barren island about 10 miles long, about 5 miles wide, about 40 miles from the mainland of Asia Minor. And Irenaeus, an early church leader, records that John received this revelation that he wrote down near the end of the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, here's what history tells us. Domitian uh, ended his reign in about A.D. 96. And so this revelation was recorded somewhere in the late part of the first century, probably the early 90s uh, A.D. And uh, this revelation is striking because of all that it contains. The word revelation, the name of the book, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which basically means unveiling. The book of Revelation is, is, is a recording of some things that God unveiled that if he did not unveil, we would not know. He had to unveil these things for us to know these things. And he unveiled many, many truths and realities to the Apostle John. Now, much of the book of Revelation deals with end times scenarios. It tells us how everything's going to unfold at the end of time. And how God's going to bring all of human history to a conclusion. And bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and all of that is detailed in the book of Revelation. But some of the book of Revelation deals with things going on in the first century. That is the case with chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus is using John to send some messages to some churches in that time, in that uh, era. And so it's interesting to, to note Jesus' different messages to these different churches. Now, this morning, before we get into the first church, which will be next week, I want to spend some time kind of setting the context and the the foundation for our summer sermon series, the message to the church, to understand uh, who this message is coming from and why this message or these messages were being sent. So there are two headings to chapter 1 I want you to see. Number 1, I want you to see the difficult and familiar situation of the churches. The difficult and familiar situation in the churches. Now look what it says there in verse 11. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I have a map I want you to see that shows these seven churches. This is in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. If you look here on this map, you see Alapatmus, about 40 miles off the mainland. And if John wrote this revelation down and then handed it to a messenger, the messenger would leave Patmos and probably sail to the mainland at Ephesus. And then you notice there's kind of a circular route which, which is parallel to the, the order that Jesus gives the churches in. So the messenger would go to Ephesus and go up to Smyrna, 
then up to Pergamum, down to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and then back around to Ephesus. It made a kind of a circle, and that was the, probably the general route someone would take to go to all of those cities to speak to all of those churches. And so a messenger would come to each church with this, with this recorded uh, revelation from John given to him by Jesus, and they would read it to the church and give this message to the individual uh, church. Now, it's interesting to note the situation or the context of the seven churches listed here in Asia Minor. I want you to think about some things they were experiencing. First of all, the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing persecution. Persecution. Look what John writes there in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. In other words, he's saying... Your suffering for living for Jesus, I am too. I'm a fellow partaker in that tribulation. I'm going through tough times because I am living and following, living for and following Jesus Christ. And so he, he shows us by that connection that the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing persecution for following Christ. Let me give you an example. Look in chapter 2, verse 9. This is the message of Jesus to the church of Smyrna. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks. But in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy, blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What if God gave Longview Point a special message this morning. He sent uh, a prophet with a special message, and the message was, hey, very shortly, you're going to be arrested, thrown into jail, some of you will die, get ready. Would that be concerning to you? Of course it would. And, and Jesus told the church this morning, persecution is coming, a, a, a fresh wave of tribulation is heading your way because you are followers of Christ. So stay Stay faithful. And, and, and the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing the, the persecution at the hands of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian was carrying out or furthering the persecution of the Christian churches started by the madman Nero. But Domitian was more systematic. He was better at, at routinely uh, persecuting Christians and trying to slow down this movement called Christianity this movement that would not recognize the emperor as God. That infuriated the emperors, and they wanted to stamp out this movement called Christianity. So Domitian is carrying out systematic persecution of the churches, and this wave of persecution had reached the churches in Asia Minor. And John takes note of that. So the churches were experiencing persecution. Secondly, the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. False teaching was infiltrating the churches. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. This is Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. We'll talk about this next week. He says, This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's saying, it's a good thing you don't like the Nicolaitans' deeds, because I don't like them either. So wait, who are the Nicolaitans? We'll get to that next week. But look with me in chapter 2, verse 14. Writing to the church in Pergamum, he says, but I have a few things against you because you have, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols 
to commit sons or acts of immorality. And so he mentions here there are some false teachers who were teaching in the spirit of an Old Testament guy named Balaam. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But then look what he says in the next verse. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here are the Nicolaitans again, this group of false teachers that had infiltrated the churches. And Jesus is saying you need to be on guard against this doctrinal error. It will lead you astray. And those churches were experiencing this doctrinal error. Third, the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing immorality, growing immorality. Look in chapter 2, verse 19. This is the message of Jesus to Thyatira. And in verse 19, he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. He goes on to say, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. So there's a woman in the church who's leading, leading people astray into acts of immorality. There's a growing immorality that Jesus addresses in this message. And then last, the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing apathy. Look in chapter 3, verse 15. This is the message to Laodicea. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I will spew you out of my mouth. Isn't that surprising Jesus says that? He mentions there their apathy, their complacency, they're hot, they're not hot, they're not cold, they're lukewarm. And he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. This speaks of the church's growing spiritual malaise, the church's apathy. So think about these first century churches in Asia Minor. They were experiencing persecution, doctrinal error, immorality, and apathy. Now, now here's my question. Does any of that sound familiar? There are some striking and eerie parallels between these first century churches and the church in America today. For example, persecution. You say, wait, are, are we persecuted? Are we going to be? We are being persecuted, and it's going to happen in an ever-increasing way. And here's what it's probably going to look like. Those who are in power will define what hate speech is. And if they don't like the message that you are speaking, they will define it as hate speech, and your message will be against the law to proclaim. And that idea of hate speech will be used, listen to me, to cause Christians to back away from the truths of the Bible and to be intimidated for sharing Christ and saying God has spoken on some issues and we want to stand uh, on what God says. And, and I'm telling you, Persecution is going to come in, in, in the days ahead in an ever-increasing way, and it's going to be mainly about intimidation, intimidating you to back away from the truths of the Bible. It's coming. It's coming. That is going to happen in an ever-increasing way in our churches in this land. And so we're going to learn some things from how you deal with that from the first century churches. What about doctrinal error? Is there any doctrinal error in the church in America today? You better believe it. You better just turn on the TV. Or better yet, don't turn on the TV. But the, the, the teachings that are being espoused under the banner of Christianity are shocking. 
And we have so many people being led astray from the truth. And here's what's happened. Instead of churches building their ministry on the unchanging Word of God, we've seen people begin to flock around cults of personality. And those personalities are leading people away from the Bible. And the, the result is chaos. The result is destruction. And it's happening. There's so much false teaching that is pervasive in the church in America today, just like in the first century. What about immorality? Is immorality an issue in the church in America today? You better believe it. If you take the average American church member and you lay their life beside the average unchurched person in America, it's very difficult to tell the difference between the two. Those who are in church talk the same way, watch the same stuff, listen to the same stuff, have the same values, have the same worldviews. There's, there's very little discernible difference between those that name the name of Christ and those who do not. There's a concerning lack of desire for holiness in our churches today. And the result is a growing, pervasive immorality where our lives are full of, of sin that's not being dealt with, that's leading us astray. And so just like the churches in Asia Minor in the first century, we have very real issues with immorality in the church in America. What about apathy? Anybody think that apathy is a problem with Christianity in America? Can I remind you that we're losing our nation? Quickly. Statistically, Christians are not even reaching their own kids. We are rapidly, rapidly losing our nation and losing our families. And yet, we yawn at the name of Jesus. And we just go through the motions of Christianity. And we wonder why we're coming apart at the seams. There is a dis disturbing apathy and complacency among Christians. And can I be real honest with you? I see it sometimes in my own life. I wish I was more on fire, more consistently than I am. It's troubling sometimes when I see apathy and complacency rear its ugly head in my life. How about you? I mean, we, don't we need a fresh movement of God in our lives? We need God to set our souls afire. Because listen to me, the first three issues will never be addressed as long as there's apathy. For example, if there's apathy and we're intimidated into backing away from our faith, you know what we'll do? We'll back away from our faith. If there's, if there's apathy and there's doctrinal error, instead of addressing it and getting in the Word and building our lives in churches on the Word, we will slip farther down into blasphemy. And if there's apathy, then the immorality will never be addressed. We'll never seek holiness. We'll never want to change and be different for the glory of Christ. We'll, we'll have no desire to be salt and light in this culture. If the apathy issue is not fixed, None of these other issues will be addressed. And so there are some eerie similarities between the church in America and the churches in first century Asia Minor. So we see here the, the familiar, the difficult situation in the churches. 
But secondly, I want you to see the compassionate and compelling appearance of Christ. Here's the question. In the midst of all of our troubles as, a, as the church in America, does Jesus have anything to say to us? Well, the answer is yes. I want you to see the compassionate and compelling appearance of Christ. John encounters in this text, Revelation 1, the risen and reigning Christ. Now, I want you to notice three things. Number one, I want you to notice what he heard. What he heard. Look what the Bible says in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So the only way he can describe this voice is so loud, it's so striking, it's so jarring that he says it's like a loud trumpet. I, I, uh, I told you the idea of getting our trumpet guys up on the track behind you. And when I got to this point, just, just tearing it and blowing it. I didn't want to scare you, so I didn't do that. All right, don't even, don't, they're not there, don't look. All right? I didn't want to shake you up. But that's what's happening here. He's, he's in the Spirit of the Lord's day, and he hears this, this voice like a loud trumpet. Then look what he compares the voice to down in verse 15. It says, His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, but when you get close to the falls where those millions of gallons of water per second are cascading uh, down, the, the sound is deafening, and he compares the voice of Jesus to the sound of many waters. This voice gets his attention. It's not a meek and mild voice. This is the voice of the risen and reigning king, and he means to get John's attention, and he does. Notice what he heard. Secondly, Notice what he saw, what he saw. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get to those in a few moments. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now that phrase, son of man, ties this passage into the book of Daniel, which has some messianic prophecies, which speaks of the Messiah as the son of man. He says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, biblical scholars have different views over what these garments picture or symbolize. Some believe that the, the long robe and the golden sash speaks of the, the priestly ministry of Christ, the, uh, speaks of the fact that he is our great high priest and him serving as our intermediary, our mediator between God and, 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 and man. Other commentators believe this speaks of, of Jesus uh, royal capacity. These are royal garments. Speak of him reigning as king. And we don't know exactly which one of those these garments symbolize or picture, but we know that both are true of Jesus. He is our great high priest. He also is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And, and we know that John describes these garments as, as striking a robe down to the feet and a, a golden sash across his chest. And look what it says in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. Now, the, the white hair of Jesus here pictures the eternality of Christ or the eternal nature of Christ. Jesus Christ has always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus Christ has not existed. Before creation was ever spoken into being by God, Jesus was there. And Jesus has always been there and Jesus will always be there. Jesus is eternal. No ending, no beginning, 
Jesus Christ has always existed. And this white hair pictures that. Now remember, the last time John saw Jesus was on earth right before Jesus ascended to the Father. Remember? And they saw Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body, but they saw him as a 33-year-old man. Right? Probably not white hair. It's as if Jesus is communicating to John. Last time you saw me, you saw me as a 33-year-old man, but I want you to see that I am the eternal Son of God. I've always existed. I have no beginning. I have no ending. And the white hair speaks to that reality. And it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ is the, the judge over all of humanity. Fire is often used as a symbol of God's refinement, God's capacity to judge all of us. And the fires in his eyes, which speaks of the omniscience of Jesus, that he sees everything. One day, when we stand before Jesus, we will not be able to hide any aspect of our lives. He is omniscient. He sees everything. And he will rule as judge over us. And then look what it says. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Again, uh, scholars believe this speaks of his judgment. Bronze that had gone uh, through the refiner's fire also probably speaks of his purity, uh, the, the purity of Christ. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is like the sound of many waters. Look at verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. We'll talk about that in a moment. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It speaks of the power of the word of God that comes forth from Christ. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow. That's what he saw. He saw Jesus. Long robe, golden sash, white hair, eyes on fire, sword come out of his mouth, face shining like the sun. I mean, unbelievable what he sees as he sees the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. But third, I want you to notice what he did. What he did. Look in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Everybody look at me for a moment. You would have to. If, if Jesus allowed you to see this unveiled picture of his majesty and splendor, you would have fallen at his feet like a dead man as well. You would have. Now, there's some parallels here with the book of, of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees these visions of God. He falls down like a dead man, and a very similar thing happens. You know, it's interesting how, how, how our, our worship can lack passion, isn't it? Let's go through the motions, you know, clap and sing and stand and sit and shake hands and, you know, go home for the day and really no difference. But, but I want you to understand that if God would allow us to see His unveiled glory, everyone in this room would be on their face in an instant, like a dead person. Because He is that majestic. He is that awe-inspiring. I like what Jim Hamilton writes. He writes, The glory of Jesus overpowered John in a way that no Roman emperor could imitate. John's audience is thus encouraged by the fact they serve one whose glory surpasses that of mere human power. Now think about this. Let's just say that one day Domitian, the emperor, said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm tired of that church leader John preaching Jesus. You bring him to me. And John walks into the emperor's chambers, and the emperor says, you know what, I'm the king of Rome. 
I want you to worship me. I'm the king. And I can just imagine John in a situation like that laughing. No, 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 no. I've seen the king. You're not it. I've seen the king of kings in his unveiled grave. You're not him. And you can imagine as churches were experiencing persecution, how this vision of the exalted Christ encouraged them to stay by the stuff, to not bow the knee to Domitian, but to stay faithful and true to King Jesus. Now, one interesting little tidbit about this appearance and John falling on his face at the feet of Christ like a dead man. If you look in John chapter 13, the story of the Last Supper is recorded where On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus gathers his disciples. And there's an interesting note as Jesus talked and taught. The Bible says that John, the youngest of the disciples, leaned against the bosom of Christ. Now, out of the the 12 disciples, it seemed like Jesus had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that he spent a little bit more time with, took them on some special occasions with him. And out of those three, it seems that John was perhaps closest to Jesus. Now, the Last Supper, John is leaning against Jesus. He loved his Master and his Savior and his Lord. He loved him dearly. But here, when Jesus pulls back the curtains of glory, we don't see him leaning against his breast. We see him falling at his feet. Both responses are appropriate. We need to have those times where we draw near to Jesus and spend time worshiping Him and, and leaning on Him and, and, and embracing Him and letting Him embrace us. We need that, but we also need to understand who Christ is, how great He is, and have those moments where we fall at His feet in awe and wonder at His majesty. What did He do? John fell at His feet like a dead man. Now, I want to close the sermon by just looking at three truths that we learn from this encounter. Three truths There's some ways this passage applies to us, and it will kind of set the stage for the sermons that are to come. Three quick truths about this encounter. Number one, we learn that Jesus speaks to his churches. Jesus does not leave his churches without guidance, without instruction, without correction. Jesus speaks to his churches. Look in verse 11. He said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I want you to write these messages down so they can hear from me. So in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see specific messages to specific local churches. But listen, God preserved these messages so that churches could apply them. In that sense, these series of messages are a Message to his church today. The reason we have the book of Revelation is so we can learn from it. And and these messages apply to us. So in the coming weeks, by way of application, the Spirit of God is going to take the Word of God and apply it to our individual lives and to our individual church. I like what John Stott writes. He writes, Christ's letters through John to the first century Christian communities of Asia have a permanent value and a universal message. Commentators have not failed to notice that the Asian church is numbered seven, a number indicating perfection and completeness in a book whose numerals are nearly always symbolic. The seven churches of Asia, though historical, represent the local churches of all ages and of all lands. It's 
Dot says these churches represent every local church like Longview Point. And some scholars even say that the seven churches represent seven different epochs of church history over the last 2,000 years. Seven different periods. And that's a whole different sermon. We don't have time to go into that today. But, but whatever you believe about that, know that there are some messages here for these churches that certainly apply to us. So as we study these messages, we're going to learn some things about how we can honor Christ as his followers and as his church. Number one, Jesus speaks to his churches. We need to listen to Jesus. Number two, Jesus walks among his churches. Jesus walks among his churches. Look what the Bible says in verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what are these lampstands? What do these represent? Well, Jesus tells us. Look down with me uh, in verse 20. The second part of that verse, he says, the seven golden lamps, the, the, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven golden lampstands represent each of the seven churches listed here in chapter 1, addressed in chapters 2 and 3. And so these lampstands represent the church. And look what Jesus is doing in verse 13. He's in the middle of the lampstands. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I love that picture, that Jesus is walking among his churches, that Jesus' presence is with his churches. We need to understand this. I, I want you to hear me carefully. The church is the only organization that Christ has promised to bless with his presence. Think about that. The church is the only organization, only institution, that Jesus has promised to bless with his presence. So when, when God's people get together, not necessarily the church building, anytime God's people get together, that's, that's the church, the people, anytime God's people get together, Jesus is walking around with them. Isn't that cool? So that certainly is the case on Sundays, because we get together every Sunday morning, Right? And we gather together as Christ's church. And when that happens, when the lampstand of Longview Point comes together, Jesus is right there in the middle of it. Jesus is walking around in our midst. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then why do we have to beg people to come to church? Think about that. Please come to church. Please come to church. Please come to church. No, listen, if this is where Jesus is, then nothing should be able to keep us away from church, amen? It's the only institution Christ has promised to bless with his presence. You say, oh, the church is, I don't like the folks that are up there. Listen, Jesus is there. Well, there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Jesus is there. There's nobody perfect in this room. No one's claiming to be. If you follow me around this week, I swear I'll let you down. But I want you to know this. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. And when God's forgiven people get together, Christ is there. And that's incredible, right? You know, we're not just going through the motions here. This is not just show up on Sunday and do our, our religious ritual. No. No. This is us 
gathering together, recognizing that Jesus is here with us. We're reminded of that by the way that Jesus refers to his walking in the midst of the seven churches of Revelation. But let me give you one last principle, one last truth to, to ponder before we close. Jesus is the head of the church. Now we know this by looking at what is in the hands of Jesus. There, there, there's some things in his hands I want us to take note of. First of all, I want you to notice there are some stars in his hands. Look what it says uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 20. He says, well, look back in verse 16. It says, in his right hand he held seven stars. Now, what do these seven stars represent? Look in verse 20. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, these angels could refer to one of two things. Number one, it could refer to angels. That God assigns an angel to each local church. Now, if that's true, just like there's a, an angel for the church at Laodicea and Smyrna and Thyatira and Ephesus, there's an angel for the church of Longview Point. That's a pretty cool thought, isn't it? And, and that certainly could be the case biblically because Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to his elect. So that could be the case. This could refer to an angel assigned to each church. You might say a, a guardian church angel, all right? Or it could refer to the leaders of the individual churches. The word translated angels is the word angelos, which could be translated angels or messengers. As a matter of fact, hold your place. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Verse 24, the Bible says, When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. That word messengers is the same word translated angels in Revelation, angelos. So it could be translated angels, could be translated messengers. If it's translated messengers, if that's the interpretation you want to go with, it refers to the, the, the elders or the pastors of the churches, the ones who are speaking forth the truth of the word of God on behalf of Jesus Christ. They say, well, which, which one do you go with? Do you go with angels or messengers or pastors? Now, I'm a pastor, so I go with pastors. I think that's a pretty cool thought, that Jesus holds pastors in his hands. Amen? And, and I, don't, I don't know if that's the right one or not, but I, that's what I'm going with. All right, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Could be angels, could be pastors. Either one, it's an awesome reality that Jesus is watching over his churches. But notice the authority here. He's holding these angels or these pastors, these messengers, in his hand. He's the one with the authority. You see, Jesus gives his church leadership. He gives individual churches pastors to lead them. But you know what? Pastors are shepherds. Pastors are not the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Now, here's why that's important. Pastors come and go, right? I mean, if Longview points around long enough, Lord willing, if Jesus tarries, I'll be off the scene, all right? And you'll have a new pastor, new pastors on staff. But guess what? Your chief shepherd doesn't change. Jesus will still be the head of this church, right? 
So I, I believe Jesus holding the, the pastors or the angels in his hand speaks of his authority. I'm the head of the church. I'm the one calling the shots. But there's something else in his hands I want you to see. Look back in chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says, I'm the living, the, the first and last, I'm the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have, watch this, the keys of death and of Hades. So in one hand, Jesus has the seven stars. In the other hand, Jesus has some keys. And these keys are keys to death and hell. Now, keys open and unlock, right? So by Jesus saying, I have the keys, he's saying, I have the authority over death and hell. That's what he's saying. And here's what that means for your life. This means that Jesus has the authority concerning where you and I will spend eternity. Now, we're not going to live forever, right? But we are going to exist forever in eternity. And where we spend eternity is based upon what we do with Jesus here in this life. Jesus is the one who will determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Wait, what gives him that right? Who is he to have that authority to make that call over my life? Well, look back with me in verse 18. Look what he says. He says, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. This speaks of the cross and the resurrection. You see, the reason Jesus Christ has the authority to give you eternal life in heaven is because Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ loves you so much, he came to earth and he took all your stuff, all my stuff, all of our sin, he took it on himself. And then he died on that hill called Mount Calvary. He died taking the punishment that you and I deserve. The punishment of God was poured out upon him. And then after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. So because he rose from the dead, because he died for our sins, he alone has the authority to give you eternal life. He has authority to forgive you, to wash away your sins. He holds the keys. And if you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here in this life, because he has the authority... He will set you free from the fear of death. He'll set you free from the penalty of your sin. He'll set you free from the power of Satan. And you'll know that when you step into eternity, you will step into heaven. and Be there forever with your Lord. He holds the keys. But listen to me. The flip side of that is also true. If He has authority to give you life eternal... He also has authority to send you to to Hades, to send you to hell. The Bible says in John 5 that the Father has put all matters of judgment into the hands of His Son, Jesus. There's coming a day where you will stand before Christ. And remember, His eyes are like flaming fire. He sees everything. You can't hide anything from Him. And on that day, if you have not embraced Christ as as your personal Lord and Savior, on that day, Jesus will declare judgment over you. 
and you will be cast into that awful place called hell. A place of torment, a place of agony that goes on and on and on forever. I'm not trying to scare you. That's just what the Bible says. And we need to take the Bible seriously. So when you die, you'll either rejoice in the presence of Jesus, your Savior, or you'll be in the presence of Jesus, your judge. And he has the authority concerning your eternity. Heaven or hell is in his hands. And he gives heaven to those that embrace him as Lord and Savior here in this life. He holds the keys. He's calling the shots. He is the boss. He is Lord. He is head of the church. So starting next week, we're going to hear what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. We're going to be reminded that we're to make sure that Jesus is our first love. Let's come ready to be addressed by Jesus.